Good morning, ladies. I am thankful for another opportunity to share with you God's Word today. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Now, the last time I taught, I taught through a text in the book of Numbers, and I thought that was a very fitting text for me because I'm an accountant. I am delighted today that John chapter 5 speaks to one of my other passions, criminal law. Before I went into accounting, I was a pre-law student and seriously considered a career in the criminal justice system. Don't worry, accounting was definitely the right place for me to go, but to this day, Watching a good crime drama series remains a passion and a favorite pastime of mine. I especially love that moment when evidence or testimony is presented which turns the tables on the prosecution's arguments and clears the defendant of wrongdoing. That dramatic moment never gets old. Well, John chapter 5, our text today, is no different. We will see Jesus completely turn the tables on the charges that are going to be brought against him by the religious Jews, who did not believe that Jesus is equal to God the Father. Many religions today deny the deity of Christ. For example, Jehovah Witness believe Jesus Christ is inferior to God and was created by God and that God the Father is greater than him. Muslims consider Jesus one of the greatest messengers to mankind, but not God. Mormons believe Jesus Christ is the firstborn spirit child of God. Mormons also believe that Jesus and Lucifer are offsprings of their heavenly father and therefore spirit brothers. And what about the evangelical world? Behind me is a graph that shows the results of a recent Ligonier ministry survey that came out a few weeks ago. You may be familiar with this because our pastor drew attention to it in church. It shows that 43%, an increase from 30% two years ago, of U.S. evangelicals who were surveyed believed that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Ladies, today, we will emphatically answer the question, is Jesus Christ God? Is Jesus Christ equal to God the Father? So... Let me set the stage for you. You, ladies, have just entered into a mock courtroom with Jesus under trial for his claim to be equal to God the Father. Unlike the other Gospels where Jesus is on trial towards the end of his ministry, in the book of John, Jesus is on trial throughout his whole ministry. John chapter 5 marks a sharp turn in the ministry of Jesus when the Jews move 
from reservation and hesitation about him being the Messiah to public hostility and escalating persecution. You will hear of the charges against Jesus brought forward by the religious Jews. His crime, healing a man on the Sabbath and calling himself equal to God. His prosecutors, the Jewish leaders, vehemently seek the death penalty. You will see Jesus on the witness stand give his defense that he is God and is indeed equal to God and has the authority to heal on the Sabbath. Not only will you hear the defense of Jesus, the accused, Jesus himself will present four witnesses to stand to testify to his deity. Your task, ladies, is to reach a verdict based on the evidence and the testimony presented. You must answer beyond any doubt, is Jesus equal to God? I have organized this chapter in three ways. First, you will see Jesus' equality with the Father persecuted in verse 1 to 18. Then you see Jesus' equality with the Father defended in verse 19 to 30. And finally, we will see Jesus' equality with the Father testified in verse 31 to 47. Let us begin with Jesus' equality with the Father persecuted in verses 1 to 18. Now, you will remember the last time that we were together, Jesus was in Galilee and he healed the official son. We now see the third sign in the book of John, which is the healing of a lame man on the Sabbath when Jesus travels up to Jerusalem for a feast. The feast was most likely the Passover, meaning that Jerusalem was packed with people and many animals for sacrifices. This healing on the Sabbath is the charge, it is the crime that the Jews will bring forward in verse 9 and 10. Let us go to the scene of this crime and see what happened. The scene is a pool by the sheep gate called Bethesda, which was just north of the temple. You can see what the site of the pool looks like today behind me. The sheep gate mentioned in the text is where the animals that were to be sacrificed went through to go into the temple. Now, your Bible may have part of verse 3, which says, waiting for the waters to be stead, and all of verse 4 missing. This is because the manuscript testimony of that text is very weak, and the text is not found in the earlier manuscripts, so we will not be covering that content. But in the narrative, we are introduced to a man who had some physical disability, This disability had caused him to lay there for 38 years. Now, 38 years indeed shows the gravity of this man's disability. From verse 7, we can infer that this man was lame or a paralytic. Jesus sees the man lying there, and he knows that he has been there for a long time. 
The same way that Jesus saw and knew Nathanael in chapter 1 when he was under the fig tree, and the same way that Jesus knew the affairs of the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, is the same way that he knows the miseries of this man. He knows because he is God. He is omniscient. This is supernatural knowledge. In verse 6, Jesus asks the lame man, do you want to be healed? Now we have to wonder about this rather peculiar question to a man who has been laying there for 38 years. I seriously doubt that this man gained much enjoyment in laying by the pool all day in his misery. Jesus, though, asked this question in love and in compassion to grab the man's attention from all that is around him. In asking, do you want to be healed? Jesus is going to reveal the condition of the man's heart. Now notice that in verse 7, John describes the man as a sick man. Sick men have no ability to help themselves, and this man's response shows that inability. Well, now this man is a rather interesting character. He has no friends. He imagines that the pool has some healing powers. He shows no zealous faith, and he is the painful opposite of all the other characters that Jesus heals. In all his efforts, he has failed to reach the waters he believes will heal him. Jesus' question, do you want to be healed, shows that this man is putting a lot of effort into something that he cannot do, something that only God can do. Nonetheless, with the power of his word, Jesus commands the man, get up. Take up your bed and walk. The man is healed immediately and permanently. He doesn't stagger off, but in full body strength, rolls up his mat, puts it on his shoulders, and walks. Lord, ladies, only the power of God can do this. This is supernatural healing. We find out in verse 10 that the Jewish leaders accost the hill men and say to him, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Well, we must pause here, of course, and consider this accusation. You will remember in the fourth commandment, which we find in Exodus 20, that it says you shall not do any work on the Sabbath. The question is, What is a work? The work that the Lord was referring to in this commandment was once customary employment. However, the Mishnah, which is rabbinical opinion, listed 39 prohibited categories of works. The last prohibited category was carrying an object from one domain to another. Well, clearly, according to Scripture, this man did not regularly carry a mat from one place to another. He had been lame for 38 years. But according to these man-made rules, he had violated the Sabbath. In verse 11, 
the healed man responds that the man who healed him told him to take up his bed and walk. Jesus later finds the man in the temple. Not that the man was lost. Jesus knew exactly where the man was, but he finds him in the temple and he says to him, See, you are well. Stop sinning that nothing worse may happen to you. It is safe to imply from this statement that this man's sickness, and that is not always the case, but this man's sickness was tied to a particular sin. Jesus is saying to the man, you have had 38 years of physical torture, sitting here by these waters, living a most miserable life. If you remain unreformed, unregenerate, Eternal punishment and damnation awaits you, which will be far much worse than what you have suffered already. The lack of response or gratitude from this man sadly suggests that he remained dead in his sins. He was physically well, but spiritually dead. We read that on his own initiative, the man goes to tell the Jews the identity of Jesus. Well, the Jews have found their criminal. They have a crime, healing a man on the Sabbath, and now they have a criminal, Jesus Christ. They are ready to prosecute. And now in verse 16, we read, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Notice how Jesus' actions are in the imperfect tense in verse 16. In other words, they are persecuting Jesus because it is a past practice that Jesus continues to continuously perform miraculous works on the Sabbath. The sentence that the Jewish leaders are seeking is the death penalty. They want Jesus dead. But Jesus has no fear of these men. Now on trial for healing a man on the Sabbath, Jesus presents his not guilty plea and answers them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. The words answered that you see there in verse 17 actually has legal overtones of a response to a charge. Jesus is saying, what the Father is doing, I am also doing. And what is the Father doing on the Sabbath? He's doing divine work, upholding the universe, sustaining life. This answer forces us to pause again and fully be arrested by the impact of this statement. See, the consensus among the rabbis was God worked on the Sabbath. Otherwise, the world as we know it will fall apart. Fair enough, right? In fact, at the end of the first century, four prominent rabbis concluded that God does not cease from his works and cannot be charged with violating the Sabbath. Remember that Mishnah law, the one that they created, saying one cannot carry an object from domain to domain? Well, the rabbi said, according to Isaiah 6.3, which says, the whole earth is full of his glory, 
God can never carry an object from domain to domain because the whole earth is his. So he can never violate the Sabbath. So for Jesus to say he is working on the Sabbath just as his father was working was an astounding claim. Jesus was claiming deity is his defense. He is saying, I plead not guilty because I am equal to God. This whole domain is mine. And by calling God his own father, which no individual ever did, except in corporate worship and only as our father, Jesus claims a unique, one-of-a-kind relationship with God that only he can claim. Because in essence and in nature, he is God in bodily form. Now, we have to be really careful here. Jesus is not saying he's another God equal to God. What Jesus is saying is that he shares the same identity of the only true God of Israel. He is saying God is one, yes, but he is not one-dimensional. Jesus has to be accommodated within the framework of God the Father. Jesus' claim to deity incensed the Jews. To them, this mere mortal was applying all the attributes and all the decrees of God to himself. Jesus to them dared to elevate himself to the grandeur of the solitary divine nature of Yahweh, whom they knew in Exodus 15.11, to have no one like him, glorious in holiness fearful in praises and doing wonders. Now they want to kill him even more. They are consumed with murdering him, not just for breaking the Sabbath law, but for calling God his own father and making himself equal to God. Now in the other gospels, Jesus defends working on the Sabbath in several ways including that he is Lord of the Sabbath, meaning he created the day, so he's not bound by it. He also states that compassion should be considered on the Sabbath. But only here in the Gospel of John does this contentious issue arise to an uninterrupted discourse about the relationship between Jesus and the Father. So Jesus now launches into his self-defense in one of the deepest Christological passages in Scripture. As we see our next point, Jesus' equality with the Father defended. Consider this section to be similar to a defense attorney's opening statement where Jesus critiques the charges against him and lets you know that he has been wrongly accused. His opening statement, truly, truly, in verse 19, should grab our fullest attention. Truly, truly, he says, the son does not act on his own initiative, but he sees what the father is doing. The son sees what the father is doing and has perfect unity and perfect equality with the father. From here, Jesus then proceeds to show four reasons why he has unity and equality with the Father. 
first. The son is equal to God because whatever the father does, the son does likewise. We see that in verse 19. The son in perfect obedience is in perfect obedience to the father, but he's also equal to him. He does nothing of his own accord. That's obedience, right? And he can do whatever the father does. That's deity. In John 10, 30, he will say, I and the father are one. And in John 14, 16, he will, six, he will say to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? The son possesses divine, intimate knowledge of what the father is doing. Anyone who can see and do what the father is doing is just as great as the father. The second reason why he has perfect union and equality with God is because the father loves the son in a unique way. We see that in verse 20. This is phileo love, meaning the deep love of affection that expresses common delight in the same things. I am equal to God, he says, because there is nothing hidden by the Father from the Son. There is continuing ongoing confidences and full disclosures between the Father and the Son. In Proverbs 8.30, we see a glimpse of this unique, eternal love between the Father and the Son. It says, Then I, Christ, was beside him like a master workman, and I was his daily delight, rejoicing in him always. The third reason the Son has perfect union and equality with God is because in perfect parallelism, Just like the father raises the dead and gives life, so also the son raises the dead and gives life to whom he pleases. Now you have to realize that the Jews believed that to raise the dead was eschatological. And the Old Testament assigned the prerogative of giving life to God the father. In 2 Kings 5-7, you may remember that the king of Israel, thinking that he had to heal Naaman, exclaimed as he tore his clothes, Am I God to kill and bring back to life? In claiming the ability to give life, Jesus is assigning eschatological resurrection to the Son the future resurrection of Lazarus that we'll see later on will show his authority to do this. And his fourth reason for claiming unity and equality with the Father is that the Son judges the world. So in addition to raising and giving life moreover and even further, Jesus says in verse 22, the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, do not miss the irony here. These Jews are prosecuting Jesus. But Jesus turns things on their heads and says, I am the judge. Judgment on the last day belongs to the Son. 
Judgment belongs to the Son for the sufficient reason that God has entrusted that authority to the Son. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus is the judge, so that he may receive honor, the same honor that is given to the Father. So the Son is not just one with the Father in works, but in worship and in honor and in praise. Jesus says, if you do not honor the Son as God, you do not honor God. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Whatever God is, Christ is. The very likeness of God, the very Godhead of God, the very deity of deity is in Jesus Christ. So there we have it. From the very mouth of Jesus, that he is equal to God. Now the fact that Jesus is God presents for us in the next verses two possible responses. Belief or unbelief. Two possible realities. Mercy or wrath. And two possible destinies. Heaven. Or hell. First, for those who respond in belief, there is mercy available and eternal life in heaven. We see that in verse 25 to 27. Jesus says there's eternal life for those who hear his word and believe the Father who sent him. If you hear the word, meaning believe and obey it, you do not come into judgment. You are automatically acquitted from your sins and granted eternal life. The offer of salvation is readily available because an hour is coming and is now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The hour right now and also in the future, already but not yet. This means resurrection life or eternal life is already being manifested and will be manifested in those who have heard the word and believed in the Son. Ladies, this is the new birth. This is the appeal that was made to Nicodemus that you must be born again in order to have eternal life. Now, do not miss, and this is important, that in verse 25, for the first time in this chapter, it just does not say son. It says son of God. This is significant, and it warrants our attention. Look closely, ladies, to what is being attributed to the son of God, because it helps us understand it. The son of God is giving life. The son of God resurrects. Only God can give life. Only a divine being can give life to the dead. Jesus claims this life-giving equality with God by the title Son of God. The Son of God gives life because, in verse 26, he is self-existent. Self-existence has been defined 
as existing independently of other beings or causes. You could read verse 26 like this. For as the father has self-existence, so he has given the son to have self-existence through eternal generation. Ladies, nobody is like this. Look around you. No one in this room has life in and of themselves. Our lives come from God. Jesus will say in John 10, 17 to 18, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Only someone equal to God can say this. Well, sadly, the second reality is for those who respond in unbelief. Rest awaits them in hell because the Son has authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Verse 27. We have to pause again because the title Son of Man obligates us to understand it. Son of man here is the apocalyptic son of man of Daniel chapter 7. In that chapter, we get a view of the heavenly judgment seat. And one like a son of man comes to the ancient of days and is given the privilege and the authority to to judge. And he receives dominion over a kingdom and the unique privilege of deity. The son of man is a heavenly person who descends to the world to be a heavenly, to be a judge. Jesus is the son of man, the representative of all men, the last Adam. The use of son of man by Jesus is therefore a claim to deity. Remember when Stephen is being stoned in the book of Acts? He looks up and he says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. This is indeed a superior and exalted title. Only the Son of Man can judge because as we learned in John chapter 3 verse 19, it says, and this is the judgment that the light, meaning the sun, has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. From that verse, the Son of Man came and revealed God the Father and so he has the right He has the right to judge those who do not believe this revelation. Only judgment will finally cast out darkness. And the Son of Man, who is the light, will do that on the last day. So ladies, it says, the hour is coming. The hour is coming. And notice that this hour is not the same hour that we saw in verse 25. This hour is no longer qualified like in verse 25 with the words, and is now. This is future hour only. This is speaking of the future resurrection. 
So the hour is coming when all in the tomb will hear the Son's voice and rise. This resurrection now includes everybody, the just and the unjust. It is a fixed hour. It is an appointed hour. It is a definite hour, and it is coming. There is no way around this hour. When that hour comes, those who have done good, meaning believed in the Son, will be granted eternal life. John 6.40 says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I, Christ, will raise Him on the last day. It is important for me to quickly note that Jesus is not affirming a works-based salvation here, because in John 6.29, He says, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who sent me. But the rest who have done evil, they will be raised to the resurrection of judgment. On the day of judgment, the wicked shall be set on Christ's left hand and receive the just sentence to be cast out of the presence of God into hell to torments with the devil and his demons forever. The son's judgment will be perfect because in verse 30, Jesus in perfect union and in perfect submission would judge according to the Father's will. So two responses, belief or unbelief. Two realities, mercy or wrath. Two destinies, heaven or hell. Will you bow? And worship the Son of God. And give him all honor and glory and praise and receive mercy. Or will you be cast out into the outer darkness on judgment day? Well, the defense cannot rest without calling witnesses. And uncorroborated evidence carries no merit in scripture. We see that in Deuteronomy 19.5 and John 8.12. We have seen Jesus' equality with the Father persecuted and Jesus' equality with the Father defended. And now we see the third and final point, Jesus' equality with the Father testified in verse 31 to 47. In this final section, please notice a change from Christ speaking from the third person to now speaking in the first person singular. In his defense from verse 19 to 29, he presented as as if he was the defense attorney on behalf of the son in the third person. But now Jesus uses the first person pronoun I and the accusatory you as he refers to the Jews. Why does Jesus do this? He does this to intensify his claims of deity. He brings forward four witnesses, not just to defend himself, but to indict the Jews. In this section, Jesus is saying, you, you Jews should know my deity because you should know and should believe these witnesses. 
These are fiery testimonials. His first witness we are familiar with is John the Baptist. In verse 33, he says, you sent John. You, my accuser, sent your Jewish inquisition to John, and he witnessed to you about me. Now, you will remember in John chapter 1 that John the Baptist was a man sent from God to bear witness to the light so that all may believe in the light. John denied being the Messiah, but he pointed them to Christ. His testimony was very clear. John was a burning and shining lamp for a while that they rejoiced in, but the fickle crowd lost interest. One commentator said, they were attracted by his brightness, but not his warmth. They were attracted by the fact that he was an interesting character who came out of the wilderness, dressed as he did, and eating the things that he ate. And people were naturally attracted to him, but not his essential message. And we have many like that today. Attracted to the latest trend, the latest fad, and tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching, but never really converted to the word of God. Do not fall to such enticements, but hold fast to the teachings of Christ. Well, Jesus has a weight here, a weight here, second witness, and this is his works. Jesus was doing signs and wonders, including healing the sick, turning water into wine, walking on water, calming the storm, raising the dead, and even his own resurrection loudly proclaimed his equality to God. No mere human, no good teacher can do these things. And ladies, Jesus appeals to you, and says in John 14, 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. If you believe that only God can do these wondrous works, do not today reject the deity of Christ. The works that Jesus did were so comprehensive so extensive, so vast, that the very last verse in the book of John says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. With every one of them to be written, I suppose the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's how extensive the works were. Jesus' third witness is God the Father himself. We see that in verse 37 to 38. In this moment, Jesus, who is the word of God, the Father, is speaking to the Jews, and they are blind to the truth about God. Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The Jews are not hearing the word of God. So he says to them, the father whom you are attesting is my witness. 
and he indicts you. He indicts you because first, his voice you have never heard with understanding. Second, his form you have never seen, but the invisibility of God necessitates revelation. And I, Jesus, am the instrument, the agent of that revelation. And third, because you do not have the word of God abiding in you. Because you Jews do not believe the one whom he sent. The reality is the Jews had no relationship with the Father. In fact, John 15, 23 says, they hate the Son because they hate the Father also. If they had a relationship with the Father, they would have believed the one whom he sent. Well, Jesus has a fourth and final witness, and that is the Scriptures. And we see that in verse 39. This witness now lays a bullseye on their religious hypocrisy. And Jesus says, you search the scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The Jews were diligent students of the Old Testament, which are the scriptures referred to here. But they were so consumed in man-made laws and each other, they failed to understand the true content and the purpose of it. The purpose of the scriptures is salvation in Jesus Christ, and they rejected that salvation. Now I look around, and I see most of you ladies have Bibles on your laps. For the most part, you ladies have your daily scripture readings. You memorize scripture. And perhaps you've given a copy of the Bible to one of your neighbors and said, start in the book of John. But some of you do not have your heart opened to the person of Christ. The point of the scriptures is the person and work of Christ and to have Christ formed within you. In your reading, are you being conformed into the image of Christ? Ladies, may it never be said of any one of us in this room that you search the scriptures, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Well, Jesus closes his discourse by revealing the hearts of the Jews. He says, unlike the Jews, he does not get glory from men. His glory comes from God. The Jews, however, do not love the Father because they are so filled with deception to the extent that they will believe anyone other than Christ. They, in fact, cannot believe Because they like to seek glory from one another and not from God. Ladies, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of humility. To follow Christ is to deny deny oneself. All glory belongs to God and we must submit to him in full worship. Is your concern... Chiefly, the glory of God. Is the glory of God always front and center of your life? 
Are you striving to always be arrested completely like Jesus was with the glory of God and not your own glory? So Jesus gives them his parting condemnation, his fiercest indictment. He says, Moses, their highly venerated mediator, will be the one who will press charges on that last day. Moses will prosecute them on that last day. They cannot retreat to the Pentateuch or the law because the feasts, the sacrifices, that whole law all pointed to Christ. So in verse 47, he says, but you do not believe. If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? They need to repent of their unbelief. Sadly, no response is given from the Jews. Having heard about the authority of Christ over their lives, they remained dead. However, the public fierce opposition to the deity of Christ escalated from this point on until they murdered Jesus on Golgotha. First and foremost, because he claimed equality to God. Ladies, the evidence has been presented, and you have heard the testimony. C.S. Lewis wrote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else you'll be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. So what is your verdict? What will you do with the person of Jesus Christ? In the deity of Jesus Christ hangs the balance of life. And death. Jesus Christ is equal to God. Jesus Christ is God. This means He has authority to govern our lives. Our lives, our attitudes, our speech, our priorities, our desires should testify to the truth that Jesus is God. Does your life show evidence of Christ's deity through your submission and obedience to his word revealed in scripture? Through your single-minded worship of him and through your ascribing of glory to him, forsaking your own ambitions and honor. 
you will remember that at the beginning, we heard from many who deny the deity of Christ. I appeal to you, do not add your name to that number, because our Lord is a consuming fire, and it is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. The ruin and destruction of unrepentant sinners comes at the hand of Christ because he has full authority as God to execute judgment. If you do not believe his word, I appeal to you to repent of your unbelief. Cry out to Jesus who is God, and he will deliver you from the wrath that is to come. And he will show you mercy. He will. Jesus says in John six thirty seven, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Turn to the authority of Christ over your life and live. Oh, how merciful and gracious. Is God the Son to reveal the way to eternal life? Psalm 2, verse 12, perfectly proclaims Christ's authority over life and judgment. It says, kiss the Son, meaning pay homage, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I pray that you will all take refuge in him. Let us pray. Jesus, Son of God, these truths do lay heavily on our hearts. Thank you for revealing yourself to us and revealing the way to eternal life. That is only through you, the giver of life and the judge of all men. We can only respond in worship and submission. We only ascribe glory to you for from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be the glory forever. Amen.